On January 15, 1989, at approximately 7 p.m., a distressing 911 call was received, setting off a series of events that would deeply impact a quiet community and lead to the longest murder trial in Westchester County history. The caller's frantic message, somebody is trying to kill me, was abruptly cut off by screams and then silence. The police operator, acting swiftly on the grave nature of the call, attempted to redial the number, but was unsuccessful. Consequently, the operator alerted the Scarsdale police. Due to a miscommunication, officers were dispatched to an incorrect address, and the incident was mistakenly recorded as a false alarm. It wasn't until almost five hours later that the true gravity of the situation was understood. Around midnight, a chilling second call was made to police by a man who discovered his wife, Betty Solomon, lifeless and blooded on the floor of their apartment. This time, the correct address was provided, and officers from the Greenboro Police Department were dispatched to the scene. Upon their arrival, they were confronted with a harrowing sight, confirming the violent nature of the crime. One year later, during the trial at Westchester County Supreme Court, Patrol Officer Michael Cotter, one of the first responders, recounted the details of that night. He described how Mr. Solomon, Betty's husband, met him at the door and explained how he found his wife's body. Mr. Solomon had attempted to turn her over, only to be shocked by the blood on his hands, a moment that brought him to tears. In the early hours of January 16th, Westchester County Medical Examiner Dr. Darley Janty conducted a post-mortem examination on the body of Betty Solomon, whose death has since sent shockwaves through the local community. The examination revealed startling details about the circumstances surrounding her demise. Dr. Janty's official notes indicated that Solomon's body was discovered lying face up in a significant pool of blood. Surrounding the scene were empty bullet casings, hinting at a violent end. The examination conducted by Dr. Louis Robb, who performed the autopsy, further corroborated these findings. Dr. Robb, in his statement, confirmed the cause of death was bullet wounds of head, chest, and extremities. He detailed that Solomon, aged 40, sustained three critical bullet wounds impacting her heart, right lung, and liver. Notably, at least one bullet was fired from a close range of approximately two inches. The forensic pathologist also noted that Solomon suffered extensive hemorrhaging from her wounds. Additionally, there was evidence of blunt force trauma, with Solomon having sustained injuries to the left side of her head and shoulder due to being struck by an object. The circumstances of Solomon's death raised questions about the motive behind the crime. The lack of any signs of forced entry into her apartment diminished the likelihood of the incident being a burglary or robbery gone awry. The investigation into the murder of Betty Solomon, an account executive for a Harrison collection agency, was spearheaded by lead detective Richard Constantino, Greenboa Police Lieutenant Cornelia Sullivan, and other members of the suburban police force. The complex nature of the case meant that it would be over a year before an indictment was made. The ensuing legal process involved two grueling murder trials before finally concluding the chapter on this brutal and tragic event. At the scene of Betty Solomon's murder, Detective Richard Constantino commenced his investigation by questioning the victim's husband, Paul Solomon. Constantino relayed a critical detail about this interaction, stating, Paul Solomon said when he arrived home, she was face down and he rolled her body over. What struck the detective as peculiar was the absence of blood on Paul Solomon, despite his claims of having moved the body. 
It was later revealed that the first officers on the scene had permitted Solomon to wash his hands and change out of his blood-stained clothes. This action, as Constantino pointed out, risked losing crucial evidence. It's the possibility of losing items of evidence, either trace evidence or gunshot residue, especially if you wash your hands. He noted, Although Solomon's hands were tested for gunshot residue, Constantino reported they didn't find any. Despite this, the detective harbored suspicions about Solomon. Because he was the last person to see the victim, and he was the one to find the body. He very much made himself a suspect by his demeanor, the way he spoke, and I was really leaning towards him being the shooter. He was very sheepish, Constantino explained. As the investigation progressed, Constantino uncovered more about Paul Solomon's personal life, which shed light on his behavior. As our investigation unfolded, we found out he was, if you want to call it, a serial adulterer. He had many affairs through the years, Constantino revealed. Paul Solomon also detailed his activities on the day of the murder, woke up in the morning, made love, and just hung around the house all day long watching TV. The tragic fact remained, however, that Betty Solomon was no longer alive to confirm or refute any of these statements. In their quest to unravel the mystery surrounding Betty Solomon's death, the police focused on pinpointing the time of her demise. They learned crucial information from a close friend of Betty's, who recounted a phone conversation with her around 7pm on the evening of her death. This conversation was abruptly ended by Betty, who mentioned someone knocking at her apartment door, promising to call back soon. However, she never did. During the initial 18 hours of the investigation, detectives persistently questioned Betty's husband about his activities on that Sunday evening. Initially, he claimed to have spent the evening bowling. However, under continuous questioning, his story evolved. He eventually disclosed to the detectives that after bowling, which concluded around 7 p.m., he went to a holiday in restaurant and bar in Yonkers. It was there he met Carolyn Warmus, a 26-year-old woman and his colleague from Greenville School in Westchester, with whom he was having an extramarital affair. Both the bowling alley and the bar provided witnesses who corroborated Solomon's presence at the times he mentioned to the police. Detective Robert Whiting conducted the first interview with Carolyn Warmus approximately six hours after the discovery of Betty, Solomon's body. Warmus, described as a strikingly attractive blonde, exhibited a notably aloof demeanor when informed about Betty Solomon's murder. Detective Whiting later shared this observation during his trial testimony, highlighting Warmus' detached reaction to the news of the murder. Detective Whiting, in his recounting of the interview with Carolyn Warmus, noted her unexpected reaction upon learning about Betty Solomon's murder. He observed, she wasn't too taken aback. She asked if everything was all right. With the dead woman's husband. In her statement to the police, Carolyn Warmus provided details of her communication with Paul Solomon, Betty's husband, on the day of the murder. She reported having a phone conversation with him approximately four hours before Betty's death. During their 45-minute conversation, they discussed various personal matters, including his daughter's basketball games and a bar mitzvah he had attended. Warmus also mentioned her own birthday and why they hadn't celebrated it together. The conversation concluded with Paul Solomon inviting Warmus to meet him that evening. According to Warmus, they met at the Junkers Holiday Inn at about 7.30pm. There, they conversed over drinks, 
touching upon topics like Betty's annoyance with Solomon's bowling habits. Warmus mentioned, I usually meet him every Sunday night after he bowls. The evening progressed, with Warmus stating that they left the bar around 10.30pm, engaged in sexual activity in her car until about 11.30pm. At this juncture, the Greenboa detectives faced a challenging investigation. The only definitive fact was the brutal nature of Betty Solomon's death, with 9.25 caliber bullets fired into her body at close range on the evening of January 15, 1989. Both Paul Solomon and Carolyn Warmus had admitted to their affair, which began in 1988. The detectives faced a lengthy and complex task in piecing together the information and motives behind this gruesome murder, a task made more daunting by the bizarre and vicious circumstances of the crime. Lieutenant Cornelia Sullivan, reflecting on the investigation into Betty Solomon's murder, pointed to the tumultuous romantic affair between Paul Solomon and Carolyn Warmus as a pivotal element. He asserted that their relationship, which persisted until Betty's death, abruptly ceased with the firing of the fatal shots. Sullivan believed that it was Paul Solomon's decision to end the affair, contrary to Warmus' desire to maintain it. As the investigation deepened, detectives gained insight into the complex nature of Warmer's personality. She was perceived as a woman who seemingly had it all, beauty, intelligence, and charm. However, beneath this facade, there seemed to be a tumultuous undercurrent driving her actions, seemingly beyond her control. The investigation extended beyond the affluent community of Betty Solomon's demise reaching into Warmus' upscale Michigan upbringing and her early career beginnings in Manhattan. Detectives were keen on understanding the intricate layers of her life and personality. Initial feedback about Warmus from her past was largely positive. A former neighbor of hers in an East Side Manhattan apartment described her as universally liked, citing her as a nice, bright, pretty, charming, a perfect lady who never caused any issues. Another neighbor portrayed her as a quiet person, very pleasant, emphasizing that she did not fit the profile of a wild person, in any way. Professionally, Warmus was equally esteemed. A personnel director from one of the school districts where she had worked commended her impressive academic background. Her credentials included a bachelor's degree in psychology from the prestigious University of Michigan and a master's degree in curriculum, and teaching from Columbia University's Teachers College. In our interview process, which is an extensive one, she appeared to be an outstanding candidate. We always check references, and what I can recall is that they were all outstanding. She was a very vivacious, upbeat teacher, recalled the school district personnel director. Her former classmates from Seahome High School in Michigan remembered her as well-liked, kind, and persistent during her adolescence, though she did not particularly stand out either socially or academically. The turning point in the investigation came when Paul Solomon went on a trip to Puerto Rico with another female teacher with whom he had an affair concurrent with his involvement with Carolyn. Detectives discovered that Carolyn followed them to Puerto Rico. There, she reportedly bribed hotel employees to send messages to Solomon and called the roommate of Solomon's new mistress, falsely claiming that the woman was vacationing with a man suspected of murdering his wife. Carolyn also impersonated a police officer in calls to the family members of the other woman, making insinuating remarks to disrupt Solomon's new relationship. Upon returning from Puerto Rico, Solomon's new mistress sought and eventually obtained a restraining order against Carolyn. As part of their investigation into Carolyn Warmus, 
detectives uncovered a significant incident from her past. In 1983, while a student at the University of Michigan, Warmus was involved in a romantic relationship with a teaching assistant at the same university. This relationship ended when the assistant chose to date and later became engaged to another student. Further investigation led to the discovery of a legal case in the Oakland County Courthouse in Michigan. The case involved court documents pertaining to a serious incident with Warmus that resulted in a temporary restraining order. This restraining order, issued in July 1984, came into effect just two weeks prior to the wedding of Warmer's former boyfriend, the teaching assistant, and his fiancée. The order specifically prohibited Warmer's from approaching or contacting the couple. The court records reveal that on April 6, 1984, Warmer's, using deceptive means, obtained the couple's unlisted phone number from an employee at Michigan Bell. Subsequently, on April 10th, she broke into the couple's apartment and was only removed by the intervention of police. Additionally, Warmus left an undated note for the teaching assistant's fiancé, which read in part, I really hope you enjoyed the past week of not being bothered by me, because now that I am back from vacation, you can start worrying all over again. The note included further remarks with misspellings, and let me tell you, with the tan I have now, you've got even more to compete with. Of course, with a body like mine, I'm sure you realized what tough competition you're up against even before I went to Florida. In fact, you're just about out of the picture completely now. I hope you enjoyed having the young man all to yourself this past week, because it will be a long time before it happens again. Of course, knowing his devotion to me, he probably spent as little time as possible with you these past week and weekend. I guess as long as you keep letting him live in your apartment with you, he'll just continue to pretend to care about you. Go right on fooling yourself, you're just making the young man's job easier for him. The complaint leading to the restraining order stemmed from the couple's fear that Warmus might disrupt their wedding reception and ceremony. Following the wedding, the temporary order was replaced by a permanent one, forbidding Warmus from any form of communication with the plaintiffs and from interfering with their privacy and travel rights. The couple had filed a complaint due to their concerns that Warmus might disrupt their wedding. The temporary restraining order was issued, which was later transformed into a permanent order after the wedding. This permanent order legally barred Warmus from any form of communication with the couple, and from interfering with their right to travel and privacy. In 1985, Warmus decided to leave Michigan. Before her eventual meeting with Paul Solomon in 1987, she engaged in a brief affair with a married bartender from New Jersey. During this time, she employed a Manhattan-based private investigator to conduct inquiries about her lover. This professional association reportedly evolved into a sexual relationship. This relationship with the private investigator proved crucial in the case being built by Westchester prosecutors against Warmus. The investigators learned that the private investigator had supplied Warmus with a .25 caliber Beretta pistol. Lieutenant Cornelius Sullivan noted that about 10 months after the murder of Betty Solomon, the investigator disclosed to the police that he had sold the weapon and a specially arranged silencer to Warmus 10 days prior to the shooting. After extensive investigative efforts, the evidence compiled was presented to a Westchester County Grand Jury. On February 1, 1990, Carolyn Warmus was charged with second-degree murder in the killing of Betty Solomon, leading to her surrender to the Westchester Police. Following the arrest of Carolyn Warmus, her detainment became a major talking point in Westchester, generating widespread shock and attention. 
the court set her bail at $250,000. During this period, students at the school where Carolyn had been teaching for the 1989-1990 academic year received an announcement from the superintendent. He informed them about the serious charge against their former teacher but emphasized her right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. In response to the news, students were given the option to speak with guidance counselors and psychologists to process their feelings. However, only a few students participated in this offer. Reflecting the general sentiment among parents, one mother of a third-grade student expressed her shock, noting that Carolyn was well-liked by the children and there had been no prior indication of such events. Although the indictment had been made and some details of the murder case were already in court records, the subsequent months were marred by frustration and delays for both the defense and the prosecution. The case, charged with intense emotions, saw prolonged periods without significant legal progress. A turning point in the case occurred on Monday, August 7, 1990. In a surprising move, Judge Carey, after overseeing three weeks of pretrial hearings, dismissed Carolyn's murder indictment. He stated that the integrity of the grand jury proceeding had been compromised. The judge highlighted that the grand jurors had not been informed that the private investigator, a key witness for the prosecution, had been granted immunity from prosecution by the Westchester District Attorney's Office in exchange for his testimony. Judge Carey described this omission as equivalent to concealing information that could damage the credibility of a crucial witness for the prosecution. Vincent Parco, the private detective, confessed to the police about selling the Beretta and the silencer to Carolyn Warmus. He had appeared before the grand jury and signed a waiver of immunity, but the jurors were not informed about a prior agreement with the prosecution. This agreement stipulated that if Parco testified at Warmus' trial, he would not face prosecution for any legal violations related to supplying the gun and silencer. Judge Carey, in his decision to dismiss the indictment, highlighted a critical point regarding the grand jury's perception of Parco's testimony. He stated, the grand jury thought, that he was putting a noose around his neck. It was really the opposite. He was removing a noose halfway. The grand jury was mistaken. It looms large as impairment of the grand jury. This decision effectively postponed the start of the trial, which was initially scheduled for September. Carl Vergery, the Westchester District Attorney, disagreed with Judge Carey's ruling. He argued that the errors identified by the court, namely the failure to disclose the non-prosecution promise to Parco, and the omission of informing the jury about his conflicting statements to Greenboro police, were primarily technicalities. Vergery announced his intention to present the case to a second grand jury, expressing confidence that a new indictment against Carolyn would emerge from this process. His prediction came true, as the second grand jury decided to pursue murder and weapons charges against Carolyn. Consequently, a new trial date was set. After considerable pre-trial discussions about the admissibility of certain testimonies and evidence, the much-awaited trial of Carolyn Warmus commenced on Monday, January 14, 1991, nearly a year after her initial arrest. A jury consisting of eight women, for men, and alternate jurors was selected from an initial pool of about 1,200 people. The trial, held in Judge Carey's courtroom, drew a large number of spectators. The prosecution was led by Assistant District Attorney James McCarty, while the defense was headed by Attorney David L. Lewis. Both legal teams outlined their strategies for the trial. 
McCarty planned to establish Warmer's guilt through a series of circumstantial evidence linking her directly to the murder of Betty Solomon. In contrast, Lewis aimed to challenge the credibility of the prosecution's key witnesses and to argue that the police investigation was flawed. He faced additional challenges due to the attire chosen by his client, which included low-cut blouses and high-cut skirts. Prosecutor McCarty asserted, the evidence will show that the person who shot Betty Solomon was not a burglar or a thief, but rather Carolyn Warmus. On the night of the murder, she had the motive, the means, and the opportunity to kill Betty Solomon. Acknowledging the circumstantial nature of the case against the 27-year-old teacher, McCarty informed the jury that private detective Parker would testify that Carolyn had approached him as a client over 18 months before Betty's murder and later requested a gun, the same .25 caliber Beretta used in the murder. Furthermore, McCarty disclosed that telephone records from MCI indicated a call made from Carolyn's Upper East Side apartment to a new Jersey sports shop on the day of the murder. This call was significant as it was the same shop where bullets fitting the Beretta were purchased. The buyer of the bullets, according to the prosecution, used a stolen driver's license for identification, which belonged to a former co-worker of Warmus. Assistant District Attorney James McCarty presented a narrative in court, suggesting that Carolyn Warmus' one-and-a-half-year affair with Paul Solomon played a central role in the murder of Betty Solomon. McCarty contended that Betty became an obstacle in Carolyn's desire to have Solomon for herself. In response, defense attorney David L. Lewis, during his opening statement, quickly countered McCarty's claims. He emphasized that the trial was about murder, not the moral implications of Carolyn's affair with Solomon. Lewis argued, this is a trial about murder, not passion, not love, not feelings. This is a trial about whether they can prove Carolyn Warmus shot and killed Betty Solomon. There is no evidence, no physical evidence, to show that she was in the room on the night of the murder. Lewis accused the prosecution of relying on a narrative shaped by poor police work, suggesting that Warmus was framed for the crime. He implied that both Paul Solomon and private investigator Parco could have been involved in the murder and the alleged framing of Carolyn. While Lewis acknowledged that the Beretta owned by Parco was the murder weapon, he firmly stated that it was not Carolyn who used it. However, he stopped short of suggesting to the jury who he thought the actual shooter was or the motive behind the supposed frame-up. Regarding the relationship between Carolyn and Paul Solomon, Lewis commented on the nature of Carolyn's feelings, stating, Carolyn was in love with Solomon, a married man. Carolyn at times, hoped that he would marry her. That was her dream. And when you dream, you are innocent, even when you dream about that. This statement aimed to separate the emotional aspects of the affair from the allegations of murder. Following the completion of opening statements, the trial progressed with a series of witness testimonies. The witness list was extensive, expected to include nearly a hundred individuals. A couple who had been with the Solomon family at a bar mitzvah the day before Betty Solomon's murder testified about the couple's demeanor. They described Paul and Betty Solomon as appearing happy and showing no signs of strain. The woman witness remarked, they were holding hands and dancing, happy and pleasant, which is the way they usually were when we were out socially. This couple also stated they were unaware of Paul Solomon's affair with Carolyn, or that Betty had been involved in a long-term relationship with another man. The trial then heard from a young man who identified himself as a college friend of Carolyn's. 
he testified that in the year leading up to the murder, Carolyn had expressed a determination to ensure she would end up with her lover. He recounted an incident from August 1988, when Carolyn, dissatisfied with the progression of her affair with Paul Solomon, visited him and mentioned wanting to hire a private detective to prove that Mrs. Solomon was unfaithful to her husband. The witness described Carolyn as being very tense and uptight and focused on one thing, and that was that she wanted to make sure that she would end up with the guy. He recalled a conversation where Carolyn asserted that combining her money and his family would create a perfect life. She emphatically stated she would take it upon herself to ensure she ended up with Paul Solomon. Several months after Betty Solomon's murder, but before Carolyn Warmus's arrest, a witness recalled a conversation with Carolyn. During this discussion, Carolyn allegedly mentioned that she and Mr. Solomon were destined to be together, implying that everything had been taken care of and that this other woman, presumably Betty, was no longer a hindrance. A private investigator, who had previously worked for Vincent Parco, testified about Carolyn's actions before the murder. He claimed that Carolyn had sought to purchase a machine gun small enough to fit in her purse and wanted it equipped with a silencer. Over three visits to his office, Carolyn expressed her concerns about a woman named Betty allegedly trying to harm her family. Carolyn also shared her suspicions of foul play involving her family members. She believed that a woman seen fleeing from a hangar was connected to a crash involving one of her father's jets. Additionally, Carolyn linked this woman to a hit-and-run accident in Washington involving a close relative, claiming the same woman was spotted near the incident. During cross-examination, the defense attorney aggressively questioned the private investigator. The attorney elicited admissions from the witness about having sexual relations with a woman he was hired to investigate for, allegedly running a brothel. Furthermore, the investigator acknowledged receiving payments for media appearances related to the case. $10,000 for an interview with a tabloid TV program, $3,000 from another source, and $7,500 for a movie deal about the Betty Solomon murder. The investigator was also set to receive an additional $42,000 if the film was produced. The defense highlighted the potential bias of the witness, suggesting that a movie deal often hinges on a conviction in the related case. The trial continued with a succession of prosecution witnesses, each facing the intense and rigorous cross-examination by David L. Lewis, the defense attorney. Known for his stout build, beard, and zealous approach, Lewis's cross-examination style was particularly highlighted in a dramatic confrontation with Paul Solomon, the husband of the murdered Betty Solomon. During a grueling five-day cross-examination, a tense exchange unfolded between Lewis and Paul Solomon. Lewis questioned Solomon about his whereabouts on the night of the murder, suggesting, you didn't get home early, on the night of the murder, because you knew your wife was dead, right? Solomon's response was one of outrage. He accused Lewis of twisting words and manipulating facts, expressing his disgust at the implications being made. Solomon acknowledged his guilt regarding the affair but vehemently denied any involvement in his wife's murder, condemning the attorney's insinuations. Lewis retorted by pointing out that Solomon wouldn't face legal judgment due to an agreement granting him immunity. Solomon responded emotionally, reflecting on the injustice of his wife's murder and reiterating his innocence. He expressed his disdain for the suggestion that he could harm his wife or be involved in her death. In response to Lewis's probing question about Solomon's knowledge of the murderer's identity, the prosecution objected, 
and the objection was sustained, cutting short this line of questioning. This exchange marked a pivotal moment in the trial, highlighting the emotional intensity and complex dynamics surrounding the case. On February 21st, Vincent Parco, the private investigator, took the witness stand, delivering what was anticipated to be critical testimony in the trial. He recounted selling a .25 caliber Beretta pistol to Carolyn Warmer's 10 days before Betty Solomon's murder. Parco admitted to initially withholding this information from the police during his first interrogation, only revealing it about 10 months after the murder in November 1989. His reason for the delay, he claimed, was the realization of his illegal and imprudent action in providing her with a firearm. Parco eventually confessed after being approached by four police officers, who had already spoken to the machinist who crafted a silencer for the weapon at Parco's request. In his characteristic manner, defense attorney Lewis aimed to undermine the credibility of Parco. He highlighted Parco's questionable investigative methods, getting him to admit to various unethical practices such as rummaging through trash, disguising his voice during phone calls, impersonating company officials, and deceiving people. Parco, who taught a course titled How to Get Anything on Anyone, conceded that he might have told his students he would lie, cheat, or steal to gather information. The jury had to weigh the impact of this cross-examination against Parco's earlier testimony about Carolyn's obsession with the gun and the specifics of the transaction. Parco testified that three days after Betty's murder, Carolyn informed him she had disposed of both the gun and the silencer, neither of which had been recovered. Describing Carolyn's eagerness to acquire the weapon, Parco told the jury about her apparent excitement and urgency. He recalled advising her to apply for a permit through the New York City Police Department, a process he warned could take six to eight months. Carolyn reportedly dismissed this option, indicating it would take too long. When asked why she needed the gun, Carolyn purportedly mentioned a spate of burglaries in her neighborhood, expressing her fear and desire for a firearm for self-protection. In late summer before the murder, Carolyn had spoken to Parco about a woman allegedly terrorizing her family. This led Parco to decide to sell her a Beretta pistol, to which Carolyn insisted on adding a silencer. She paid $2,500 in cash for both items, which Parco said he delivered in the first week of January 1989. Parco recounted a conversation with Carolyn the day after Betty Solomon's murder. She informed him that she had been questioned by the police about the murder of a woman, whom she described as the wife of a casual acquaintance. According to Parco, Carolyn initially claimed the victim was bludgeoned or stabbed, not shot. Carolyn allegedly admitted to hiding the gun in her bedroom and later asked Parco to retrieve it. However, she subsequently told him he no longer needed to collect it because she had disposed of it, claiming she threw it away on the parkway. A significant turn in the trial came when the defense presented what they claimed was an MCI statement showing no call to the new Jersey gun shop on January 15, 1989, but rather a call to a relative of Carolyn's around the time of Betty Solomon's murder. Contradicting this, an MCI employee presented company records indicating that the call to the gun shop did occur, and the call to the relative did not. This discrepancy in phone records led to a separate forgery indictment against Carolyn in the fall of 1991. After four months of trial, the case was finally handed over to the jury, composed of eight women and four men. They deliberated for 12 days, during which they sent several notes to Judge Carey, indicating they were deadlocked. 
Despite the judge's encouragement to continue deliberations, the jury remained unable to reach a unanimous verdict. With the jury hopelessly deadlocked and tensions escalating, Judge Carey was compelled to declare a mistrial. In early 1992, a new jury was selected for the retrial of Carolyn Warmus, with some changes in the key players. Notably, defense attorney David L. Lewis was replaced by renowned defense attorney William Aronwald. Judge Carey continued to preside over the case, and assistant district attorney James McCarty again led the prosecution. Key prosecution witnesses, Paul Solomon and private investigator Vincent Parco, reprised their roles. Carolyn Warmus, in a departure from her previous courtroom appearance, opted for more conservative attire. The testimony and evidence presented largely mirrored that of the first trial. However, a significant new element emerged, the presence of a woman's glove in photographs taken of Betty Solomon's body at the crime scene. This glove had mysteriously vanished after the murder and was absent during the first trial. Before the second trial commenced, prosecutors requested Paul Solomon to recheck his former residence for the glove. On March 31st, ADA McCarty introduced a major piece of evidence, a black-knit woman's glove with suspected blood flecks. Although tests to confirm the nature of the flecks or match them to the victim's blood type had not been conducted. McCarty revealed that Paul Solomon found the glove in a box at the apartment he had shared with Betty. A relative of the Solomon family testified, identifying the glove as similar to a pair Carolyn had lent her in 1989, described as soft, black, with short fingers and long wrists. Judge Carey allotted a week for Aronwald to counter the prosecution's demand to admit the glove as evidence. On the day Aronwald was scheduled to present his argument, McCarty disclosed new evidence. Carolyn's credit card records indicated she had purchased a similar pair of gloves at Feline's department store. Aronwald, taken aback by this late revelation, accused the prosecution of sandbagging the defense. He argued, our position is that even assuming there was some evidence that Ms. Warmers purchased a pair of gloves similar to Exhibit 272 in 1987, that is not sufficient to establish that 272 is the glove at the crime scene. If they can't do that, the fact that she may or may not have purchased a similar pair of gloves is irrelevant. Aronwald's statement underlined the defense's contention that mere similarity between the gloves Carolyn purchased and the one found at the crime scene did not conclusively link her to the murder. On April 13, 1992, Judge Carey made a pivotal decision in the Carolyn Warmer's trial by allowing the controversial glove to be admitted as evidence. This item became the first piece of evidence in the two-and-a-half-year-old case that potentially placed the defendant at the murder scene. Nearly 13 months after the first jury was unable to reach a verdict, the second jury began their deliberations on May 21. Their process, spanning seven days, was observed to be methodical and collaborative, suggesting a more cohesive and systematic approach compared to the previous jury. On May 27, 1992, the courtroom awaited in silence as the jury, led by the four lady, entered to deliver their verdict. The anticipation was palpable, as the decision came after an extensive period of deliberation and a lengthy, complex trial. The jury found Carolyn Warmus guilty of second-degree murder and possession of an illegal weapon. The moment Carolyn Warmus was found guilty, a hushed gasp echoed through the courtroom. Composed yet facing a stark new reality, she experienced the tangible finality of her situation as handcuffs clicked around her wrists. 
The court officer's Samba directive, let's go, marked the beginning of her journey from the courtroom to incarceration. Awaiting her sentencing on June 26, Carolyn was taken to jail. The penalty for second-degree murder in New York State ranges from 25 years to life imprisonment, a significant duration that underscored the gravity of her conviction. Outside the courtroom, defense attorney Aaronwald addressed the press, indicating plans to appeal the verdict. He acknowledged the strength of the circumstantial evidence but emphasized his client's shock and disappointment. Aaronwald reiterated Carolyn's steadfast claim to innocence painting a picture of a defendant who had held on to hope for acquittal until the very end. Assistant District Attorney McCarty, reflecting on the case's conclusion, expressed a sense of relief mixed with empathy for all parties involved in such a tragic and complex case. On June 26, 1992, Carolyn Warmus returned to the Westchester County Court to receive her sentence. As anticipated, she was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. This sentence marked the closure of a case that had become one of the most shocking, gruesome, and dramatic in criminal history, leaving an indelible mark on the community and the legal system. Warmus is serving her sentence at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for Women, under the inmate ID hash 92G0987. In January 2017, her incarceration disciplinary history was released, revealing 11 affirmed misconducts. Carolyn's first parole hearing took place on January 9, 2017, 25 years after her imprisonment. Represented by attorney Maya Morganroth in the State Appellate Court, her request for parole was denied in 2017. In 2004, Carolyn brought forth serious allegations against the prison system, claiming she had been sexually abused by prison guards. She filed a federal lawsuit against the NY State Department of Correctional Services, alleging rape and coercion into trading sexual favors for basic privileges. As part of this lawsuit, Carolyn provided evidence of Lieutenant Glenn Looney's sperm, which she had kept refrigerated in plastic. Looney was charged with second-degree sexual abuse on April 15, 2004. The lawsuit was settled in 2008, with the Department of Correctional Services paying Carolyn a settlement of $10,000. On the day of her sentencing, Carolyn's attorney announced a reward of $250,000 for information leading to the arrest of Betty Solomon's killer. However, Betty's sister dismissed the reward offer as bogus, asserting that the evidence against Carolyn was conclusive. She expressed a preference for a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. Following Carolyn's first trial, public pressure mounted on the Scarsdale School Board to remove Paul Solomon, Betty's widower and a teacher, due to his admission of multiple extramarital affairs during the trial. The situation eventually led to Solomon being reassigned from classroom duties to non-teaching roles in September 1991, in an agreement reached amicably between Solomon, the school board, and the principal of Greenville Elementary. This reassignment was a response to the community's concerns, and the controversial nature of his personal conduct as revealed during the trial. In November 2016, Carolyn Warmus returned to court, this time in a legal battle against her former lawyer, Julia Height. Accusing Height of malpractice, Carolyn contended that Height had mishandled her appeal by failing to test DNA on the glove evidence found at the murder scene. Seeking restitution, Carolyn demanded a return of $80,000 in legal fees and an additional $320,000 in total compensation. 
Her attorney, Maya Morganroth, mentioned that Carolyn was eager to be released from prison to undergo surgery for a brain tumor. In March 2018, Carolyn gave an interview to the team of Crime Watch Daily, discussing the Betty Solomon murder case. During the interview, Crime Watch Daily remarked on the negative media portrayal Carolyn had received, to which he responded by criticizing the media's focus on sensationalism rather than facts. She expressed that if the media had concentrated on the truth, the narrative might have been different. When the interview described her as the kind of woman a man would want to bring home to his mother, Carolyn responded affirmatively, characterizing herself as the girl next door. Despite her incarceration and the surrounding circumstances, Carolyn continued to assert her innocence. She claimed that Paul Solomon had manipulated her into a situation that diverted police attention from himself, portraying her as an obsessive and emotionally unstable woman who could be capable of murdering his wife. When asked if she believed Solomon was trying to frame her, Carolyn unequivocally affirmed this belief. When questioned about a restraining order filed against her by a couple, Carolyn clarified that it was a mutual arrangement to prevent any interaction between them and her or her family. She suggested that the full context of the situation was often overlooked. Discussing the motive proposed by the prosecution for Betty Solomon's murder, Carolyn questioned the logic behind it. She referred to Paul Solomon's claim about a planned divorce with his wife, arguing that there would be no benefit for her in such a situation. She described the idea as something more fitting for a soap opera. Addressing the lack of direct evidence in her case, Carolyn emphasized that it was entirely based on circumstantial evidence, highlighting the absence of forensic proof, eyewitnesses, or a murder weapon. Responding to the comparison of her case to Glenn Close's character in the film Fatal Attraction, Carolyn acknowledged the only similarity was the involvement with a married man. She felt that this comparison greatly prejudiced her case, believing that it was tried in the media rather than just in the courtroom. When asked directly about acquiring a gun from Vincent Parco, Carolyn denied ever purchasing a gun from him or disposing of one. She also refuted making a call to Ray Sports Shop in New Jersey, a point contested during her trial. She pointed out inconsistencies in the phone records presented by the prosecution, suggesting either fraud or error. Finally, when asked about her reaction to the conviction, Carolyn expressed her shock and reiterated her innocence, denying any involvement in Betty Solomon's murder. She indicated that this interview might be her last testament, a poignant reflection on her situation and the gravity of her conviction. Jeffrey Deskovich, a man who experienced a wrongful conviction firsthand, is among those who believe in Carolyn Warmus's innocence. Deskovich's conviction for rape and murder was overturned due to DNA evidence, highlighting the potential for errors in the criminal justice system. After receiving compensation for his wrongful conviction, Deskovich dedicated himself to aiding others who, he believes, have been similarly wronged. His support for Carolyn Warmer stems from this mission. Deskovich's perspective offers a contrast to the jury's verdict and Detective Constantino's belief in Warmer's guilt. His involvement underscores the complexities and controversies that often surround high-profile criminal cases, especially those hinging on circumstantial evidence. Ending her interview with Crime Watch Daily, Carolyn Warmus expressed a forward-looking attitude, focusing on positivity and hope for the future. This statement reflects her continued resilience and the support she receives from individuals like Deskovich, who believe in her innocence and work towards advocating for those they believe have been unjustly convicted. 
As of 2019, Carolyn Warmus was released from the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility after serving 27 years for the murder of Betty Jean Solomon. She was granted parole in June 2019 and reportedly planned to live in the New York City area. This release came after she was last denied parole in January 2017. Despite her conviction and the significant time spent in prison, Warmus has consistently maintained her innocence.